John chapter 2. I have a story from the late Dallas Willard, who, who uh, recollects of the time when electricity came to his area. All I can think of is that's kind of like remembering before the internet. Uh, we've lived with electricity for so long, but he says this. As a child, I lived in the area of southern Missouri where electricity was available only in the form of lightning. <laughs> and we certainly had a lot of that. But in my senior year of high school, the Rural Electrification Administration, and that is a real thing, or it was, I think they closed in 1994. They extended the lines into the area where we lived and electrical power became available to households and to farms. When those lines came by our farm, a very different way of living presented itself. Our relationships to fundamental aspects of life, life such as daylight and dark and clean and dirty and work and leisure, preparing food and preserving it, could then be vastly changed for the better. But we still had to believe in the electricity and its arrangements, understand them, and take practical steps involved in relying upon it. Strangely, a few did not respond. They did not enter the kingdom of electricity. The power that could have made their lives far better was right there near them, making relatively simple arrangements they could utilize it. But sometimes, people just don't want to change. Being a Christian is more than agreeing with a stated set of beliefs and trying to be a better person. Being a Christian is entering the kingdom of God and experiencing the life transformation that only Jesus has to offer. The way that all connects with John chapter 2 is that we, we will notice, well, perhaps you already had in the read, reading, but we'll make, I'll make sure that you do notice this. Jesus said things that only God could say. And Jesus did things that only God can do. And so Jesus offers a life that only Jesus can offer. That only God can offer to us. As we unpack the first portion of John chapter 2... Uh, we'll look at the first of seven miraculous signs that Jesus performed. A sign is a visible demonstration of what it looks like when God's power is released in the midst of people. Jesus is an entirely different category of people, and so we ought to expect that following Jesus would place us in an entirely different type of life. And in fact, it does. Well, my aim this morning is to show you that, again, Jesus said some things that only God can say, and Jesus did some things that only God can do, and therefore Jesus shows us, and he can deliver upon this, give us a life that only God can offer. Jesus has the power to change your life, but you need to be willing to have your life changed. In other words, it is not automatic. You need to talk to Jesus about that. Let's understand this passage first, and I'm just going to talk my way through this as we, as we go along. 
Uh, we'll look at the setting first and then the significance of, of the event. You may have noticed that um, as you heard this passage read, your mind was drawn to the miraculous transformation of water into wine. But there is so much more that happened here. I don't know if you saw this or if you paid attention or if you noticed this, but there was a, there was a conversation. There were people. There was a village. And there was a wedding. All of that is important. And we'll look at pieces of all of that. Let me reread the first couple of verses of John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, I can tell you from the first verse, perhaps you've seen it, but just following through the entire passage, Jesus is the only person who's mentioned by name. I noticed in verse 4, well, verse 3 refers to Jesus' mother. Verse 4, he calls her woman, and then it goes on from there. It just refers to Mary as his mother. Mary is not named in this passage. I see in verse 5, there's a mention of servants. Verse 7, the mention of servants again. There's Jews mentioned in verse 6. There's a master of the banquet mentioned in verse 8 and 9. There's guests that are mentioned and more servants that are mentioned. Verse, uh, verse 9 also mentions a bridegroom. You'd have to assume there's a bride as well. But nobody is mentioned by name. The point being, Jesus is the only one that you can identify as being somebody who stands out in this. Otherwise, it's just a, a collection of average, ordinary folks. And I like that because I often feel very average. In fact, we're all average people. There's no one here that's of notoriety or nobility. There's nobody really in the category of what we might call special. There's just everyday people. And Jesus attends a wedding with them, a wedding celebration. Uh, I want to remind you that um, on those days when you feel average and maybe even a little bit on the lower end of average, God knows you. He loves you. He cares for you. He's willing to work in your life. You don't have to be a special somebody in order for Jesus to show up in your life. Well, at this wedding reception, a problem occurs that needs to be solved. Verse 3, Jesus' mother says, When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. And I'm going to suggest to you that that is, in fact, an implied request. Look at verse 5. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. She's expecting Jesus to do something. I think in response to the implied request of Jesus, could you take care of this problem that these people have? There is no more wine at the celebration. To run out of wine in the ancient world at a wedding celebration was more than a little bit awkward. It was a disaster. A wedding celebration would have taken place over several days. There's a little bit of a quid pro quo going on here. The bride's family has paid a price. There's a dowry that is involved. And so there's an expectation of tit for tat. There's also a social understanding of you go to yours and I'll go to mine and it'll be good on both sides. You, you paid to have me over to yours. I'm going to pay to have you over to mine and it's going to be good. 
I will do the very best I can. It will be good. This is just a social disaster to run out of wine and to have to serve water. Interesting where this request comes from. The mother of Jesus. Now, you would think that if anybody at this celebration knows that Jesus did not attend a public gathering to perform party tricks, it would be his mom. And yet she is the one who's saying, hey, hey, uh, we're out of wine here. Implied, could you please take care of this situation and perhaps even do it quickly? Think about it. Who else at this wedding knows that Jesus can do anything? We read in verse 11, this is the first of his miraculous signs. In other words, he hasn't done anything like this before. He has not put on display the power of God that runs through him. And in response to this, it thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. They, they, they believed in him. This is the first time they've seen anything like this. Nobody really seems to be in the know of wanting to ask Jesus that maybe he has the potential to do something here except his mother. And she does approach him. Mary knows what to ask, when to ask, and she in fact, in fact asks Jesus to do something about this. So you could say that Mary intercedes on this situation. If you are of a Catholic background, love you, mean it. My sister is a Catholic. She loves Jesus. She talks about Jesus more than most people I know. I have nothing derogatory to say about Catholicism. However, this is not a passage that teaches Mary can intercede. In fact, I don't even think that's in the Bible at all. To, to, to come away from this situation knowing that Mary's in the know and she approaches Jesus and Jesus takes care of the situation and then to try to form a doctrine or some kind of a belief that, you know, we can go to Mary anytime we want and she's going to talk to Jesus. She has an in with Jesus. No, that's not in this passage. Watch how Jesus responds to his mother in verse 4. Woman, why do you involve me? Now, we read that almost as a little bit of a cut, right? It's a, a, it sounds a little bit derogatory. Why can't he call her mom or mother or ma or mama or something that, that elevates her and acknowledges the position that she has had in his life? It's not derogatory. Later on, when Jesus was in the Gospel of John, in fact, when Jesus was dying on the cross... He said to her, woman, behold your son, referring to the apostle John. And to John he said, behold your mother. He's not being derogatory. But he is leveling the playing field. He is letting her know and everybody else know and us today know that Mary does not have an inside track with Jesus Christ. Everybody is on the same playing field. Mary, just like everybody else, will have to come to Jesus as her Lord and Savior to receive salvation and access to God. 
Your only access to the power of God is through Jesus Christ. It's not through Mary. It's not through a set of angels. It's not even through a, a, a priest, if we were to have a priestly sit, uh, situation. It's through Jesus Christ. Well, the response of Jesus to his mother is equally perplexing on the, on the surface. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. And you might be reading from a translation that says my hour has not come or something along that line. My time or my hour has not yet come. This phrase or something just like it occurs a number of times in the Gospel of John. Now, if you were reading John straight through for the very first time, you might not know that. Well, in fact, this is the first mention of it. So if you're reading through John for the first time, humming along, and you come, come to this phrase, my, my time has not yet come, you might not notice that that is something of distinction. But as you read through the Gospel of John, you might become aware of well, I think it, I've, I've encountered that before. Sometimes it is a good practice to read books of the Bible more than once. Read through the Gospel of John and then turn right around and read through it again. And by the time you're reading through the second time, you'd realize, you know, th this, this phrase appears a bunch of times. Maybe I should look into this. That is one of the ways we do Bible study. We just read an English Bible through several times, if it's a smallish book, and we begin to notice patterns and themes in Scripture. So I'd like to draw, this, uh, to your, draw your attention to this. If you could turn some pages or on your device, change your chapters. John chapter 7 is the first one we're going to go. Uh, I'll show you, I think, six times. There's, they fit into two categories here, three in one and three in another. John chapter 7, verse 6. Jesus goes to the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, but he's not ready to be fully... Um, exposed as the Messiah in this uh, visit to Jerusalem. John chapter 7, verse 6. Therefore Jesus told them, the right time for me has not yet come. Isn't that interesting? So Jesus is aware of a, a sense of timing. He says that to his mom. My, my time has not yet come. And now he's saying it here to, to his disciples. The right time for me has not yet come. And then jump down to verse 30 of John chapter 7. Verse 30, they begin to um, gather around Jesus and they hear some teaching that they don't like. So now there's some opposition going on. Some, some of those are hostile in the crowd. And verse 30 says, at this they tried to seize Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. So that's John now, not quoting Jesus, but just making a commentary on what happened. There were people who were angry with Jesus. They wanted to take Jesus by force, but they could not. Why? Because his time had not yet come. So Jesus being very aware of this when he speaks to his mother that there is a schedule there is timing, and it's very important. And he, he seems to understand that nobody is going to take him by force until his time has come. Turn a page, John chapter 8, verse 20. John chapter 8, verse 20. Jesus, again, is, is uh, doing some teaching. Pharisees challenge him, and here we have uh, verse 20. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple 
area near the place where the offerings were put, yet no one seized him because his time had not yet come. Now I'm going to show you that it changes significantly here. John chapter 12, we'll see a similar phrase again. Look for time or hour, depending on your translation. John chapter 12, something's going to change and it will change significantly. John chapter 12, let's look at verse 23. Uh, so this is, uh, I think this is the first time Jesus predicts his death in the gospel of John. Uh, so he predicts his death, but in verse 23, Jesus says, the hour has come. What is this hour about? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Wow. Okay, let's move on down to verse 27 of John chapter 12. So the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now let's see what else he has to say about this. Verse 27, now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Uh, John chapter 13, verse 1. Jesus is aware that now the hour has arrived. John chapter 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast. That's the feast where he is crucified. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. So now Jesus knows the schedule is, is here. The time is now. The hour is this hour. And he's about to die. So that's what Jesus is talking about when he's talking to Mary. My time has not yet come. My hour is not yet here. He's talking about the fact that it's, it's not his time yet to go to the cross and to suffer and to die. That aspect about glory, Jesus will be glorified and he will reveal the Father's glory, but it will not be through magic tricks at a wedding party. It will be through the suffering of the Savior. That's what Jesus is leading up to. When we got to John chapter 12, there's this awareness that the Son of Man is going to die. That's the glory that Jesus wants to hang on to. That's the glory that Jesus wants to reveal to people. He wants to go to the cross. He wants to die. He wants to be glorified so that all glory will go to God the Father who devised a way to save people from their sins. Amazing. The hour toward which everything moves is the time of his glory, which is crucifixion, Resurrection, ascension. In John chapter 2, Jesus is looking toward his ultimate purpose in life. And Jesus seems to have seen, well, in fact, he did. Jesus saw everything, all of life, with the perspective that all things need to fit into the purpose of going to the cross. And so what Jesus says to his mother demonstrates his submission to the sovereignty of God. Woman, why do you involve me? I'm looking at John chapter 2, verse 4. My time has not yet come.
from the perspective of Jesus Christ, the real need of these folks at the wedding celebration is not wine for the festivities, but the new wine of the new covenant, which will be his blood shed for the remission of sins. It's interesting though, that Jesus had a sense of timing that there was a predetermined schedule and he appealed to that. Jesus said to his mother, your request is not on God's schedule. So the the obstacle that Mary was bumping up against was the schedule of God, or you could say it this way, the sovereignty of God. Okay, well then you would think she doesn't have a shot if she's bumping up against the sovereignty of God. How could that be changed? But there's more here than a wedding. The setting of a wedding in general, is more important than this particular wedding in Galilee. Let's think big picture for a moment. In the book of Genesis, on page 2 of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2, there's a wedding. In the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, in Revelation 19, there's a wedding. And here we are, the first time that the Messiah uh, puts a reveals his glory, reveals his deity with a miraculous sign. It's at a wedding. Could there be a, th a theme in here? There's a wedding and there's a wedding and then right here in the middle there's, there's a wedding. In Genesis chapter 1, we're taken through the entirety of creation. And then in Genesis chapter 2, we have get a close-up look at the creation of humanity with a, a man and a woman, and God presides over their wedding at the end of Genesis chapter 2. But then sin enters the, the experience of humanity, and from there on out, the biblical story is creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. So it's pretty easy when you look at the first three chapters of Genesis to understand creation and fall. And then redemption carries on through the, uh, through the uh, course of Scripture until we get to Revelation chapter 19, verse 9, where the consummation is being celebrated. Revelation 19, 9 refers to this as the wedding supper of the Lamb. And the wedding supper of the Lamb is a glorious celebration of those who are in Christ, meaning that it, is, it has happened, that God's plan has been achieved, a way of salvation, a way of bringing people back into the presence of God and allowing them to have access to God and being saved from sin, Satan, death, and the wrath of God. That has occurred. And in John chapter 2, the Messiah is here. The Messiah is here. Jesus Christ, our Savior, is here. He's on the scene. Let's celebrate. And he brings his own wine to add to the celebration. But there is another detail here that is too easy to miss. But we can't miss this one. There's water jars 
Let's take a look. Verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, and they held from 20 to 30 gallons. The water jars are not just any old water jar. Jews used these water jars in their ceremonial washing. In other words, that was the old order of Jewish law and custom, which is now being replaced by something better, something joyful, something new, and it's brought to them by the Messiah himself. So beginning with John chapter 2, one of the underlying themes in the entire Gospel of John, and I alluded to this last week, is that the new has replaced the old. New life is found in Jesus Christ. And in John chapter 2, the first half, we have new wine instead of the old ceremony. In John chapter 2, the last half, and we'll look at this next week, we have a new temple instead of the old temple. In John chapter 3, we have a new birth given in addition to the old birth. In John chapter 4, there's a new harvest field. Samaritans, Samaritans can come to God instead of just one nation or one people group. And on and on it goes throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus is the new, the old is gone. Clearly, Jesus does not work this miracle because his mother asked him to. But there is something more meaningful that Jesus wanted to present and reveal some of his glory. Back to that exchange between Mary and Jesus. Please understand that Mary's concern is very real. In the ancient wedding, excuse me, in the ancient world, a wedding needed wine for the celebration. But also understand the resistance of Jesus. The glory of God is ultimate, and God is sovereign. At this point in time, as of John chapter 2, Jesus has not yet even finished, uh, he has not yet selected the 12. He needs to finish that. He has not prepared the 12. He has not trained them. They are not ready for the Great Commission. They are not ready for him to leave and to send the Holy Spirit, and then they would go from there. He, he's got, first of all, find the 12. Gather them together, collect them together, and then train them and spend time with them. That has not occurred. It is not Jesus' time yet. It's just simply not ready. It is not on the schedule. The time is not yet, and so Jesus resists their request. People will want to glorify Jesus for his miraculous works, but Jesus will not be glorified through the signs of his deity. He will be glorified through the suffering as a Savior. Even so, somehow, without compromising the sovereignty of God, the human need is met. And the request is granted. God's sovereignty is not compromised. Not in the least. Human need is not ignored. Nobody is slighted. The, gr the granting of the request, as only God could have it, slid nicely into the sovereignty of God and his plans. Verse 11 again, this is the first of his miraculous signs. Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee, and the result, 
he thus revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let's do a little bit of theological reflection. If you were in our core class, you heard about that this morning. What if the crisis at the wedding had not occurred? Would we only have six signs in the Gospel of John instead of seven? What if, the, what if Mary decided that she could not approach her busy son with something as trivial, well, we think it's trivial, with something as non-spiritual, put it that way, as wine at a wedding? What if she felt like she couldn't talk to Jesus about that? What if Jesus stayed behind his, that resistance? My time has not yet come. Only a sovereign God is so good that he can take all of that complexity and fashion it into his perfect will. Not only for that moment in Cana of Galilee, but also tied in with Genesis, wedding, Revelation, wedding, and what we need to hear today. Well, let me try to tie this together with a couple of thoughts. Number one, the sovereignty of God is not your enemy. It is your friend. Right now, God is at work in your life to move you toward his glory. That might be hard to understand if you're going through hard times. But please consider this. Jesus submitted to the sovereignty of God at every turn. Some people don't like the sovereignty of God because they feel as if it means everything is decided and that we're just puppets going through life as if somebody had us on a set of strings. No human freedom because God is going to do what he predetermined to do. That's not the perspective with which we see in John chapter 2. That just doesn't seem to be the way John lays it out. Um, If I could get you to turn one more time in the Gospel of John chapter 14. The Gospel of John chapter 14 verse 13. Jesus makes an incredible promise that I think all too often is left on the table. John chapter 14, verse 13, Jesus said this, And I will do whatever you ask in my name. Now, if you stop right there, wow, that sounds daring. (laughs) I can think of a lot of things to ask in the name of Jesus Christ, some of which might not be great. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that, for the purpose of, so that the Son, of, the Son may be glory to the Father. So, wow, that, that sounds like a grid I need to get through. So the, the request will be granted only if it's consistent with the purpose of the Son bringing glory to the Father. You, verse 14, you may ask me for anything in my name. And I will do it. Ask away for the purposes of God to be achieved, for the will of God to be recognized, 
for the glory of God to be put on display. You cannot ask amiss. When you pray, do you consider the glory of God? So often, most of our requests, I think, I've noticed this in myself, so I'm thinking it might be present in your life. Most of our praying is in response to something in our lives that perhaps we don't like. Or maybe there's an aspect of something that we do like that we want to attain that we don't have. So what triggers us to praying most often is something that occurs to us. There's a little bit of discomfort. We don't want this or we want that that we don't have. And we go to God and we ask. Yeah, you can do that. But you're leaving a lot on the table. When you pray, do you consider the glory of God? When I read John chapter 14, verse 13, it looks like the person who makes the request is supposed to submit to the glory of God. And I get the impression that Jesus submits to the glory of God every single time when he grants the request. The sovereignty of God is not your enemy, it is your friend. Here's a second one. The sovereignty of God is bigger than your comprehension and your imagination. When I've unpacked John chapter 2 in the past, and I, I looked at it again, and I really struggled with it this week, how in the world does this all fit together? And I finally come to the, to the end of my resources, and I have to say, quite frankly, I don't know. I don't know how it is that Jesus says, there is a predetermined schedule, my time is not yet, and, and she says, his mother says to the servants, do what he says, and he says, fill up the jars with water. And he turns it into wine. But he had just said, my time is not. He had just said, there's this program. There's this schedule. It's all laid out. It's predetermined by a sovereign God. And yet somehow human flourishing was impacted in a positive way. The sovereignty of God is bigger than your comprehension and then and your imagination. I happen to be one of those Christians who believes the scripture teaches God is sovereign and he sovereignly chooses those he saves and then he, he keeps those that he saves as well. For 35 years, I prayed for my parents before they became Christians, knowing that, believing that, scripture teaches God chooses whom he saves yet I prayed and I prayed and I prayed most often on my knees sometimes saying the same things over and over again to whom else shall we pray if God is not sovereign would you rather pray to a God who is not sovereign I prayed I was motivated to pray because I trusted God in his sovereignty could somehow grant that request. And to this day, I would have to say, I, I honestly don't know how all of this works together, but I see it in scripture, so I will embrace it. God is sovereign, and we can freely ask. Christian, don't leave things on the table. Don't leave your lives uncovered with prayer. I don't know if I finished that story, but my parents came to Christ uh, just a, a few years before they died. Did I? I don't know if I mentioned that. But, uh, God in his sovereignty uh, pulled them in. 
There's no other explanation for it. God in his sovereignty had mercy and his grace abounded. Mary, the mother of Jesus, made her request in the form of a directive. Do whatever he tells you. And at that point, Mary is done. She is trusting her son to do or to not do, but it's, it's out of her hands now. She has left it in the hands of Jesus Christ. Jesus did what was necessary for the accomplishment of God's glory, which led to human flourishing at a wedding celebration. And all of that was in submission to God's sovereign plan. God's glory will be displayed in Jesus Christ, but it is a glory that will be best and most clearly revealed in crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. That's a God that you can trust. That's a God that you can trust when you pray. Do you trust him? Let's pray. Dear God, we will be forever grateful for what you show us in your word and what you teach us in scripture and what you allow us to hear when your word is proclaimed. And now, there's this little bit that's on us in terms of we are responsible for our response to what we have heard and seen and come to understand today. God, we are grateful that you are bigger than we are, that we cannot entirely figure you out, that we don't have all the answers, that we understand you are a God of mystery and majesty, and we're okay with that. We love you, God, and we want to love you more. We trust you, but help us to let go of our fear and to overcome our fear. And I pray, I pray that you would replace our fear with faith, trusting belief that you will do what you have promised to do. Lord, around this room this morning, I think we can all think of people who are far from you, or at least that's what it seems like when we watch them live and hear them talk. Far from you. We pray for them. Moms and dads and sons and daughters and aunts and uncles and co-workers and friends and acquaintances and Sometimes people we meet on an airplane, so many people, names and faces, some of which are just so precious to us, we pray for them, that you would save them, that you would reveal yourself to them. We pray that you would send workers into the harvest field, send Christians to them who can witness to them, perhaps better than we can. Draw their attention to you through the word of God. If necessary, I pray that you'd even use the internet or 
songs that are passing through the airwaves somehow, somewhere. Use the, the lifestyle of Christians as well as particularly the words of Christians to communicate to a lost world that Jesus Christ is Savior and that you are making an offer. God, help us to, to not leave so much of our lives uncovered with prayer, but to want to cover every aspect. Moms and dads, I, I pray that we would look down the corridor of time, and, and, and we know because we've lived our lives. We, we know what's coming down the pike. Cover your kids with prayer at those crucial moments when they date, when they choose a spouse, they get involved in a career, when they meet the wrong crowd, or so we say, cover them. God, I pray that you would cover this church with your Holy Spirit and your protection, but also your empowerment that we might be the people you want us to be, that we might be the church that you want us to be. Thank you, God, for your goodness, your glory. We are humbled to come before you as people in need. All we can say is, here we are. Here's the need. You do the work. We will trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.